Was it Luke 4? Where Jesus had come out of the wilderness. He had had his spiritual testing and communion with God. I, I personally believe that's when Jesus really knew what his mission was fully, was when he came out of that experience. And yeah. and that's certainly what certainly when his ministry began. What was that? I you know, I love I've found a question in my mind over the last few years, and I've asked different people. So if the Savior were walking on the streets today, what would it look like? Would you would you recognize it? Would you slam on the brakes and pull over and go to be in this crowd? Could you identify him walking with them? How are you taking enough time in your life to do this? How would you recognize him? And of course, some people go, oh, no, there'd be so much light around him. And he'd be, you know, he'd have angels surrounding him and it'd be this glorious thing. And that didn't happen in Jerusalem. That didn't happen in Israel over there. You know, so many didn't recognize him. They weren't ready. And are we really any different? You know, are we looking so far past or is he the one helping somebody with a tire along the road? Is he somebody that's helping somebody fix something that they didn't, you know, were so distraught and everything, you know? How would we see him? How would we notice him? So in Luke chapter four, to go back to that, that's exactly right. Uh, we see him or we see him preaching in all the synagogues or in a lot of synagogues, I should say. He returns to his hometown, Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah, um, basically the verses, and I think it's uh, verse chapter sixty-two, to proclaim the the good day, the good year of the Lord, to you know bind up the wounded, to heal the sick, whatever those verses are, beautiful verses. And then he says to them as he closes it, hands it back, and sits down and says, "Today in your ears, this prophecy." Or these scriptures are fulfilled and people were outraged you know this you're joseph's son you don't what do you mean and then he said yeah a prophet isn't accepted in his own country he said uh you know and then he describes at least two events where uh, the two events where elijah the prophet was fed by a woman who was not a jew and then pointed out to the healing of lots of people were sick but only naaman the syrian was healed and people they were outraged and took him to the edge of the cliff i went and looked it up to see if there was actually a cliff in nazareth there is and they were gonna they were gonna throw him off the cliff that's the kind of reception we get from hidden uh people who just because of their appearance or their background or their resume or whatever we go now there that's that's not the right person in the verse that you're referring to one of the special things that gets me is he went back to capernaum to where his family was living and stuff he could do no miracles among his family because they saw him as the carpenter's son they saw him as the one that teased his sister or, or whatever the one that um uh, ran down the streets you know and uh so anyway, they saw him as a young boy, and he he says right directly in that verse, I could do no miracles among them. That's right. I think there's verses that say that his brothers, because he had he had family members, 
his brothers didn't believe he was anything special. Exactly. Uh, you know, and so we have to be, uh, un the, the Lord's plan is uh, not what we expect. That's what I'm trying to point out. Uh, we go back all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we see the Lord doesn't make things easy. He makes everything as a trial, right? He picks yeah. Jacob over Esau. Esau's the firstborn. Jacob gets the birthright. If the Lord wanted to make it simple, he just would have had Jacob come out first. But no, Esau comes out first, and Jacob's holding onto his heel. And the same with Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, Joseph wants Manasseh to get the blessing because he was the firstborn. But Jacob, who's giving the blessing, says, no, Joseph, I know what I'm doing. Manasseh's a great man, but it's supposed to go to Ephraim. So we have these, you know, violations of standards and practices all of the time. David, the shepherd boy, becoming the next king. Over and over, we see this pattern. You know, one of the great stories that I love is in Judges, and I believe it's chapter six through eight, where Gideon has an angel visit unto him and tells him that he needs to go out and do these great things for the Lord. And he says, who am I? I am the least of my brothers in my father's house. And, um, you know, the Lord doesn't pick somebody with crowns and worldly things with them. He often picks the lowly one to do his work and things. And I often think, well, that is so similar to the Savior and so similar to the temperament as I have been with him and stuff that there is nothing that he wouldn't do. In fact, he says, there's nothing I haven't done that my father has done. So we know that in following his father's footsteps that he has done, you know, I mean, it's just, it's hard to, hard to think in my mind of these steps to follow, to be like his father. And we're trying to follow in those steps, you know. Well, we go back to this foreordination idea and what we're prepared to do. We read that some of the church the church leaders, uh, they're foreordained, they're prepared for those specific callings. And just for people to know, we have uh, a, most, for the most part, lay members who hold the leadership positions in our wards and in our stakes, only at the highest levels of the church when they're working full-time is there some kind of a minimum i'll call it a, a modest uh stipend paid for full-time but for the vast vast majority of of the uh, positions in the church these positions are filled by lay members they're not paid not a paid clergy and uh these people get called uh well you'll, you'll have a visiting authority from the church headquarters uh can be a 70, which is a general authority or a, an apostle, they go out and visit and they are supposed to replace, let's say every 10 years for a stake president, every four or five years for a bishop. And that's done more by a local leader with the uh, permission of the church headquarters. But, um, you know, they, they very carefully consider who they're supposed to call. And uh, there's a They'll interview people and they'll wait until they get a spiritual impression about what to do, I believe, on many, if not most occasions. But let's read Alma 13. It says, uh, verse 2, And those priests were ordained after the order of his son, 
in a manner that thereby the people might know in what manner to look forward to his son for redemption. So the purpose here of these priests, this is, of course, under the law of Moses still. This is before the birth of Jesus Christ. The law of Moses was completely in effect. They had priests, and they're supposed to point them to Jesus Christ and to the redemption. They knew about having a Savior. They knew about this before he was ever born. It goes on to say, though, here's the key verse, verse 3. And this is the manner after which they were ordained, being called and prepared from the foundation of the world, according to the foreknowledge of God, on account of their exceeding faith and good works, in the first place being left to choose good or evil, therefore they having chosen good and exercising exceed, exceedingly great faith, are called with the holy calling, yea, with that holy calling which was prepared with and according to a preparatory redemption such so the lord looks on as he told samuel or in the book of samuel uh i think it's uh first samuel 16 7 the lord looks on the heart he's not looking at position prestige um uh, worldly accomplishments your resume he's looking for people who have exercised faith and good works understanding and know the savior this is the most important part and how do, how do you get that, Sean, right? Unless you've been through the fire of affliction or challenges. Uh, you, you don't, you know, it isn't, it isn't uh, those that have had the easy road, typically. You know, I love where I grew up. It, it taught me so much being in a rural community of, uh, you know, the biggest town there, 5,900 and some people. But to have 27 different churches there and to associate with all of them in different ways and stuff and to see the christ-like attitudes from them and recently my wife and i have uh, sought to attend different churches in addition to our church and uh, we have found some beautiful christ-like people in some ways you know that's what i really think seek and i glorify is these humble people that are out there to help one another to carry each other's burdens to listen to one another it's just it it brings me close back to the pre-existence and back to the love that i i felt there among all of us was the 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 coming together in christ and coming together in that pattern of uh, loving one another and supporting one another you know today we were up uh, near an area where people go in to the snow and they have these winter sport vehicles or travel vehicles and uh one of our friends had left his truck parked on the side of the road where the trailhead is and he'd been there for several weeks and he was buried with snow uh we couldn't get it out we had we were shoveling uh, this man drove by in a truck he'd had a couple of little kids in the car with him and he drove by and we kind of smiled at him Hispanic uh, man uh, and he had made a U-turn and parked his car and next thing we know uh, he and his two little boys they must have been like five and seven maybe even younger than that he came over and said hey my my boys want to help can we help you out we said man that is awesome so we went back to our our vehicle we had a couple of extra shovels they were smaller they wanted he wanted to use the big one the older boy I said, I got, a, I got one more of your size. So we got the shovels out and they were out there shoveling away. 
And I was so proud. First of all, I was so humbled that someone who didn't even know us would come over and, and just assist, just a random person. I was so proud of this father for teaching his kids the value of service. And they were so happy that they were helping. They were talking about how happy it made them to help other people. And I was just proud of this man. You would never look at him and think, this guy's going to pull over and, and help us out. Um, just by his appearance, not because he was Hispanic, but he had a long beard. He had these kids. You didn't think that there would be any reason for him. He's just up there and let's get out of here and turn around and go back. But they came out and and spent, you know, 15, 20 minutes with us until we got the vehicle out. I was so touched by that act of service. You know, this is what excites me so much about the days ahead of time. You know, I mean, we're going to continue to talk about uh, tribulation and the things that are facing the world to shake them up. But all the time, we're going to encounter more and more of these people, and we're going to be more and more like these people in our life until we have a strong, growing culture underneath this culture of fear and everything else. And that excites me to bring us back to this state of the pre-existence and this joining together as brothers and sisters towards a common cause, no matter who we are or where we stand. And this will, you know, the, the rest of the world that has not committed themselves to Christ and not committed themselves to those principles will be fearful and in torment and worried about everything while the rest of us are sharing and working together and helping one another. One of the things that the uh, BYU professors, and they were all, probably all PhDs, but they were all scholars, uh, were worked for the Department of Religion at BYU, and they just were really insightful, quite a group. Robert Millett, uh, Joseph McConkie, a really wonderful woman whose name I don't recall was with them, and a couple others whose names escape me, but they were talking about, you know, the second coming uh, could be as soon as you get hit by a car and you're gone. You know, there's a, there's a danger in waiting or just saying, oh, I'm going to repent when I know that the uh, the day is close. Uh, and they were offering that the day and the hour we don't know because many of us would just wait until the bitter end before we were, in a sense, compelled to get our lives in order to prepare for his coming. And that's not the way the Lord wants us to do it because we could go at any minute. That's the reality. Most of us, uh, you know, I, historically we've all died by natural means. It hasn't been uh, because the savior came. And so we need to be very careful to not, you know, just use the second coming as a, as a measure to when we should start repenting. Yeah. You know, the, uh, several years ago while I was in the workforce and stuff and I had done this type of work you know I've been working in industry and things since I was 12 years old so I put in 42 years by the time I was disabled but I had gone to work one day and I just decided who am I working for I'm not enjoying working for this company working for these men working for this thing from this perspective and I thought to myself, why don't I change my perspective? I'm going to work first today for the Lord, and I'm going to help people, and I'm going to lift their hopes. I'm going to do something extra to help them during their day, and then I'm going to work for this man, and I'm going to work for this company. 
and everything in my life began to change and I was so much more happy but I think that shift in who I was and everything by who I decided I was going to put work for first that day made the whole difference I remember telling my wife maybe I was naive when we first got married I said look you're really important in my life but the Lord is first <laughs> she didn't like that uh, I was just being honest uh and but you know over time she has learned to appreciate that uh I'm not saying I've always adhered to that okay in my life but I did I do feel that and I and I have on many occasions uh put the Lord first meaning that the decision that I had made was a spiritual decision that caused her a great deal of discomfort <laughs> And uh, like, usually the example is moving, you know, where to move, where to live. I, I have had strong impressions where to go uh, three or four times. And it's met with resistance because she doesn't like change. But every time that we have followed the spirit on it, number one, it's worked out. Number two, looking back, she's like, I'm so glad we did that. And I'm so glad that, you know, um, you're putting the Lord first and not my my comfort. Well, you know, as I watch you and everything, and I know you don't often like your line of work and everything, but I think now that this line of work involves helping others who have been wronged and things and lifting them and stuff, that things have changed within you and your personality is different and you're starting to enjoy things more as you do things through this change. <laughs> true. That's true. Um, let me ask you a question so you can maybe help us out here. What are some of the tactics that you recall firsthand seeing Satan use that we should be attuned to so that we know what his tricks and what his methods are? It's when we feel really tired, when we feel overwhelmed. He looks for flags like this when we are uh, have disconnection with others. When we feel at odds with our wife, when we feel at odds with our friends, with our employers and things, he sees those flags and this distress in our face and distress in our actions. And then he steps in and whispers quiet, small things to us to say we could be happier if we stepped out on our wife. We'd be happier if we drank some more alcohol tonight to the point we forgot it'd be, be happier if we didn't go home tonight we could be happier if we did this if we pull apart from the family if we pull away from our family and pull to others that have problems and, and so he's always in the shadows looking for these moments of darkness and i mean not only darkness in our how we feel but darkness of the night and um, whispering these things to us when we are broken. So just got to have our guards up. And, and uh, even though at times we don't want to turn to our scriptures or turn to a good book and read uh, when we can't sleep or something, that's the secret is to do kind of the opposite of what we feel that's weighing us down, go naturally to things of light to help us. There's a funny story. Well, first of all, there's a scripture that says uh, Satan is Satan that teaches a man not to pray. And I remember a story reading about Brigham Young, 
the second president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the story went that somebody was walking by, I think walking by a room and hearing Brigham Young pray aloud. And he was struggling, you know, get on your knees, Brigham, and pray. He's talking to himself. I don't want to pray. You know, and he's he's got this audible fight. And he's having to force himself in a moment uh, to pray because there's a natural tendency at times to not want to pray. And he just was going to push through it and was having this, uh, <laughs> somebody heard him, uh, you know, fighting over it over whether he is going to pray or not pray. I always love that story. 